Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. And today I'm very excited to have a guest, Heidi Brown. Heidi is an attorney in New York City. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's just jump right into it. Heidi, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey, uh, what you're doing now in the legal profession uh, so that our, our listeners can get to know you? I started off my journey, geez, about three decades ago. I went to law school right out of college and I got a job right out of law school at a firm that just happened to specialize in construction litigation. I did not know what those two words meant next to each other. (laughs) And I'm, as I'll talk a little bit more about, I'm an introvert, very quiet. I was a, a good student, but performance aspects of being sort of a tough litigator were kind of challenging for me. But nonetheless, I hung in there. I did that for six years for this construction law firm in Virginia. And then I was going through kind of a a difficult personal time in my life. And I moved to New York. I just packed my car and up and moved to New York, started completely over, got a job in a big law firm for a year. And then after that, I segued to a small 10-person law firm. So I kind of had over a span of 15 years, I had a range of medium-sized big law and tiny law firm Refriting and doing kind of the behind the scenes stuff was my specialty. The performance aspects of lawyering always sort of gave me some challenges, which I'll get to. 15 years into my career, I was I actually moved out to California. I was working on a big power plant construction litigation project or a case. And I got invited to start teaching, to start teaching legal writing. And so for the first three years of my career, I was still practicing law and teaching at the same time. So I never slept. It was, it was kind of crazy seven days a week. But that during that time period, my first year or two of teaching, I realized that my strongest legal writing students, my most creative problem solvers, deepest thinkers, collaborative team players were also my quietest students and the ones that were the most afraid of the performance aspects of law school, just like me. So that sort of launched me into my teach full-time teaching career. I left the California law school, moved back to the East Coast, worked for a New York law school for four years, and then shifted to the job that I've had the last seven years as director of a legal writing program. But also, I became really a full-time author as well. I've written seven books, four really legal textbooks type stuff, um, legal writing textbooks, but three that I'm really most proud of and most passionate about. I wrote one called The Introverted Lawyer, a sequel to that called Untangling Fear in Lawyering. And then my most recent one based on all our lovely positive psychology concepts, The Flourishing Lawyer. And I'm about to leave my current job to go join New York Law School as their first associate dean for upper level legal writing. So I'm finally going to kind of shift out of the first year program and teach creative approaches to pedagogy for teaching legal writers in their second and third year of law school. Wow. That is incredibly impressive, Heidi. And I, I've written one book and you've written seven. I, I cannot even, I felt like writing one book took a few years off my life. So incredibly impressive. 
but would love to hear and, and really interesting about how you kind of you know, turn to teaching, not that the teaching profession is an introverted profession. It's, it's not having, you know, both Michael and I having been professors, we, we certainly know that teaching is, is a highly engaged role or, or job to have. So can you tell us a little bit about your current role as you move into this associate dean role and your, your new book and just tell us a little bit more about what you're doing today? Sure. Yes. It was really teaching that got me into writing about the psychology of introversion and, and really the assets and strengths of being quiet, but powerful and impactful at the same time. And it changed the whole way I teach because I used to, I walked into my classroom as a professor for the first time, trying to fake it till I make it like I did for 15 years as a lawyer, which never worked for me. I'm, I'm sort of the anti fake it till you make it girl. And it was researching techniques to, first of all, figure out myself so then I could help my students. That really led to where I am now. So writing the three books, each book, don't don't get me wrong, takes two years off my life too. <laughs> but writing is one of my, my four well-being pillars. Writing, traveling, I take boxing lessons, and I love this particular band, which when I say it out loud, it usually makes everyone roll their eyes. It's the band U2. I love them. Uh, but... So I, writing is one of my well-being pillars, and I feel happiest when I'm writing. And then teaching writing is is just another extension of that. And now, and I love to innovate. And so I'm excited to leave. I feel like I'm leaving the program that I've been working in the last seven years in a good spot. But I'm really ready to change my focus to more holistic teaching of writing, writing identity, helping law students understand that they don't have to suppress their personal identity to be a good communicator as a lawyer. Because like, I felt like I had to pretend to be someone else. And it was a really unhealthy way of approaching law school lawyering and also professoring. I Once I stopped trying to fake a different persona and totally be myself, even if I'm, I blush a lot. So in class, if I, you know, a student asks that, difficult question and my face flushes. I I used to feel like a fraud and now I just kind of joke about it and it brings me closer to my students. I love that. And I think it's so interesting that you're intersecting positive psychology with the legal industry because it's not really like this intuitive thing like, oh, of course those two would go together. It's kind of like, no, how do they go together? So I'm curious, what are you most excited about with your work in the legal industry and the teaching industry? intersecting with positive psychology? How do you put them together? And why does that excite you? I love that question. Yeah, the legal profession and, and legal education folk tends to focus a lot on what's broken, what's what's negative, what's what's wrong. And, and students come to law school and the profession kind of thinking in terms of dualities, right and wrong, winning and losing. And as we know from studying positive psychology, it's it's a lot more, it's not that we're going to ignore the brokenness of society, et cetera, but we can do much more when we focus on strengths. And in my opinion, legal education for decades has sort of been this one track, like there's quote the myth of one pathway to success as, as a law student or as a lawyer. And I feel like positive psychology kind of sets that whole thing aside, creates space for every individual to bring their individual strengths. Char- I'm big on the character and the character strengths, because every law student has to satisfy what's called a character and fitness assessment to get into law school, but also to be admitted into every jurisdiction's bar. But we don't talk about what it means to have character. And to me, 
character in law school is sort of treated like checking a box. Yes, I have character on this day, so I'm eligible for the practice. But when do we sit there and really think about what does it mean to have character? And so that's where I feel like the positive psychology approach to character strengths, especially through the FIA, the Values in Action Institute on Character, and change the whole landscape of legal education and practice by teaching students on day one of law school, you all are different from one another, and that's good. And you all bring an individual constellation of character strengths that we can cultivate, not just check a box that we have them today and and we're done, but really nurture and figure out a way to have a flourishing life in the law, because the law does not is not has not traditionally been big on well-being and I think that needs to change. I think that's such an important that's just that last statement you said is so important and I think there's probably a few professions whether it's law whether it's healthcare or medicine and these other professions that you assume that they're well taken care of because usually they're professions where you make more money and you know you're highly educated and all of this but the burnout and the other aspects of of that, as well as the kind of persona that gets that gets stereotyped into those roles. And if you don't quite fit that persona, then you probably feel a little bit stressed, like you had mentioned. I know that you had mentioned that you have your master's, I believe, in applied positive psychology. And so what are some of the positive psychology interventions that you have found have really worked either with your students or in your writing program? What what interventions do you think are most effective? Well, I mentioned the via character strengths assessment, that is my number one go-to approach to getting students interested in positive psychology because it's a scientifically validated assessment. It doesn't take long to fill out the assessment. And to me, it's so illuminating. And, and I kind of make it fun for the big reveal when we find out what our top five signature strengths are out of the 24 that the 55 scientists that got together to create the VIA identify 24 character strengths among, that situate within these six virtues. And when you, for law school and lawyers, when you look at the virtues, it's like wisdom and courage and humanity and justice. Those are all law-related concepts, in, in my opinion. But these students don't come to law school with a language or a vocabulary around character and, and virtue. And and also legal education, again, in my humble opinion, tends to squash individual personality and, and make students feel like they have to mirror the behavior of somebody else. So I think the VIA has been really helpful in terms of creating a common vocabulary with my students. And I share my top five signature strengths. Mine are perseverance, zest, curiosity, creativity, and love of learning, which is just so me. But I also share with them my, my lowest strengths. And it's funny because when I told them this, the past seven years in my role as director of a legal writing program, I've been leading a team of 11 professors. Well, guess what my bottom two strengths are? Leadership and teamwork. And so when I told my students that, <laughs> I had to you know, be vulnerable. But I share with them, it doesn't mean that I can't do it. It just means, you know, as the literature says, they don't, it doesn't energize, excite, or come easily for me. It's the three E's. But my top five strengths totally have the three E's. I like bounce out of bed every day to be curious about, you know, my next writing project. So the VIA is a huge one. And then I have a second one if you want me to share another. Okay. 
So I took a coaching certification course with another positive psychologist, uh, Dr. Robert Biswas Diener. And in his coaching certification program, he taught us this tree exercise. And basically, you take and want to give him full credit for this. This is totally his thing. And I've practiced it with my law students. You have the students draw a tree on a piece of paper, and it can be any tree. It could be a palm tree. It could be an oak tree. It could be whatever. And and then he he starts with the soil. And, and the soil is our resources. And he asks us, or and I ask my students, you know, write down in the soil area under the tree, every different resource you have accessible to you. And it's it helps you realize you have a lot more resources available than you think. And the roots of the tree are your values because they're the filter of, of life that's coming into you as the tree. And so I found a couple of good values, ways to figure out what our values are. One of my good friends, Jordana Confino, who teaches at Fordham Law, has a values exercise that I'm happy to share. So you identify your values and then the trunk of the tree are your strengths. So that's where we can bring in either the via character strengths or other different strengths assessments like strengths profile, strengths finder. And then for the big branches of the tree, those are sort of, you're supposed to choose just like three major life domains that you want to work on. Not more than three because it can get, your tree is going to be huge. The smaller branches are subdomains of those big three. And then the leaf canopy is your action items, your your goals, but also how you're going to start working on those big domains. And then I think the coolest question Robert asks is, where is your tree? Is it alone in a on a desert island? Is it in a forest? Is it in front of a house? Is it in a meadow? Is it in a park? So it kind of helps you situate where you are in the world. And to me, that's just been an awesome metaphor for getting my students comfortable talking about some of this kind of touchy-feely stuff that in law school, they seem like, oh, we can't go there. But drawing a tree on a piece of paper with some colored pencils, <laughs> it's, it's fun and it, it gets them thinking about their values and their strengths and their goals and their life domains they want to work on. I think that tree exercise is so interesting because I know we had talked about it last week and I was thinking... I'd love to have you be a guest for my well-being class for my undergrad and grad students to to lead that exercise because you're right. We have a lot more resources than we really think about. And when you put it on paper, then you're like, oh, I do have agency. I really can do stuff. And you kind of stumped me when you said that Robert said, you know, so where's your tree? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> where's my tree going to be? So I think I think I might have to be a student there as well. Before I go into to my next question, I wanted to follow up on, on Tessa's topic. We were talking with our last guest about artificial intelligence. And, you know, we all know chat GPT is just writing everything in like five or six seconds and, and you're doing writing. And they say that, that the legal profession is really going to be impacted. And I'm curious, I mean, you're getting a bullseye impact with AI, with legal and writing. And I'm just curious, what are you thought what are your thoughts on it? What are you telling your students and and how should they embrace or not embrace? How should they interact with with AI? What do you think? This is such an important question. There was just a big news item that a lawyer used ChatGPT to draft a brief and then and filed it with the court, but, but the citations were fake. They were fake cases. And and so it, it really is important for us to not put our head in the sand and ignore ChatGPT. There's a lot of law professors who are just having policies where you're just not allowed to use it and it counts as plagiarism. But that's not, that's in my opinion, again, and I'm a novice to ChatGPT. I, 
I'm going to do a deep dive in July and August to get ready to teach this fall because we got to be teaching our students the ethical use of AI because it exists and law firms are, are using it already, but the ethical use of it. And then what I'm really curious about, and this is my new kind of research project, is how can we teach writing identity? Like, how can we teach the next generation of lawyers to think of themselves as writers, like artists or athletes? I'm big on the athlete model, too. But to not not use artificial intelligence as a substitute, but use it to enhance their their thinking and enhance their moving their representation of their clients forward in a, in a healthy, ethical way. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is yet, but I, I do think we can't we can't fear it. And I'm completely technologically incompetent. So I need to not be afraid of, of AI. I need to dig into it, but then have honest conversations with our students about how to use it ethically and for good, not, not just to take the easy way out. It's hard. It's hard conversations. I started teaching it last semester and you're welcome to borrow my first assignment, which is use chat GPT and find an error. So if you ask it something that you know deeply about, it'll make a mistake. It does. It gets math wrong pretty quickly and dates. So <laughs> you'll find a mistake. I did a ris- really risky thing and given my students a- an assignment where they needed to draft what we call a client alert or like a legal blog to take a complex legal topic and put it in language that the layperson could understand. And they all did it and I graded their papers. And then we gave ChatGPT the same prompt and I was watching it write it in real time and it took, you know, 30 seconds for what my students spent weeks doing, which freaked me out. But then when I went, I told them I was going to grade it and I actually ended up giving the ChatGPT version a 48 out of 100 because, again, all the cases were wrong. Oh. The, it made overgeneralized statements. It looked good like it at first glance, but when you started to really dig into it, the nuances just weren't there. And, and also it didn't live up to sort of the standards in this grading rubric that I give my students. So I was very relieved <laughs> that it didn't do the, the the best work. I was, I was relieved. Yeah. That's so interesting to hear. So I'd like to pivot a little bit with the work that you're doing and just kind of talk a little bit about your own personal philosophy. How does your own personal life philosophy intersect with the work that you're embarking on now? I feel like I really have to walk the walk of of what I'm writing about. And and I'm very honest and open with my students and my readers. Everything I write, I kind of overshare. And I've grappled a lot with extreme public speaking anxiety, first of all, in my entire career. And of course, I chose a career that requires a lot of public speaking. I also have wrestled with a lot of anxiety and fear. And But in digging into the science of all that, for the first time in my life, about five years ago, I started treating myself like an athlete. And, you know, growing up, I didn't I didn't really I played volleyball in high school, but I wasn't good at it. And and I took aerobics classes and stuff in my 20s. But I started really taking myself seriously as an athlete and put myself in boxing lessons. And and during the pandemic really became a runner outside. And now taking that like athlete's mindset and applying it to legal education and to lawyering, I'm trying to encourage my students to think of themselves as scholar athletes, or if, you know, the athlete model doesn't resonate with everybody. So if it could be scholar athletes or scholar performers. 
And athletes and performers don't just focus on the one skill that kind of brings them glory on the field or on stage, right? They have, they have, first of all, they ask for help. They have coaches and trainers and nutritionists and people to help them with the mental side of it, the physical side of it, obviously, if they're athletes, the emotional side of it, the social side of it. So I took these six dimensions. There's there's a national task force on lawyer well-being, and they identified six dimensions of well-being. And they're the usual, you know, mental, physical, emotional, social, occupational, and intellectual. Actually, I'm, I think I repeated one because spiritual is definitely one of those. And then I added to that in my Flourishing Lawyer book, an artistic and creative dimension. Because I think law students think there's no creativity in law school. It's either yes or no or right or wrong. But there's so much creativity needed when the answers aren't clear in the law, which they're not always. Um, so I added four more dimensions. And I'm trying to encourage students and lawyers and judges and paralegals and everybody touched by the legal system that we can't just focus on our intellect because we're going to hit speed bumps in our mental health and our and our emotional health. And, and like athletes, we need to what athletes and, and the medical profession does is something called prehabilitation. So they anticipate vulnerability and they get ahead of it. So they build up muscle around vulnerable joints. Or if people are having surgery, like they do prehabilitation on the areas where they're going to need to recover after surgery. I think in the legal profession, we can focus instead of rehabilitation, looking backwards, we can be thinking, we know we're going to hit stressful times. So how can we build up strength, use our existing character strengths, but also build around using 10 different dimensions of well-being instead of just our intellect? Heidi, I I just, I love everything you're saying and I love the metaphors that you bring into your work because it's so applicable to, you know, kind of the different spheres in which people kind of live their lives, but they can apply the same lessons. And I think it's so powerful. So as we close out here, which this was such a honestly meaningful <laughs> Last half hour, as we close out with this final question, what are you what are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, this is a really fun project that has nothing to do with the law. I am writing a travel memoir. I it really it's about my personal well-being, so less of my stuff at work, but I think it will inform my teaching as I segue and transition into this new job at New York Law School being creative because I love to travel. As I mentioned, it's one of my four well-being pillars. What I realize when I travel is it helps me process a lot of a lot of my anxiety and, and fears. And I'm always doing something kind of scary when I'm traveling and I get through it. And, and then I remember, oh, I felt that way, that racing when I was in my boxing lesson. I'm not, I know I survived that. So I'm going to survive this. So the travel memoir has been a huge passion project of mine, really kind of throughout the pandemic. It's given me another outlet for writing that that is totally different from my legal writing. But I feel like because I'm so excited about that, it's going to help me infuse creativity into my course curriculum design at my new job. So that's that's what I'm excited about and working on now. <laughs> Heidi, I think there's like three of you. <laughs> <laughs> all you these have things. so much energy, but I, I do have My to say that New York law is very lucky to get you because you're incredibly thoughtful in, in just your approach to work. And I think you're just going to do great things. I just, I love everything that you've said. It's just amazing. 
Thank you so much. I'm excited. I'm excited to work with creative people. It's going to be a really fun change for me. I'm looking forward to it. Good for you. Well-deserved. Heidi, thank you so much for spending the time with us. And I'm looking forward to your tree class. I've already decided I'm going to do a bonsai. I love it. Bye, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.